So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to read the, the whole of the chapter. So I reflected on, on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have since long vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. 
Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Good morning. Please take your seats. Thank you very much for your prayers this morning. They're greatly appreciated. Um, For anyone who's not regularly with us, I'm Dave, uh, one of the members here at Emmanuel. Uh, Nigel, our pastor, is away this week. I'm sure it's a coincidence that it happened to be over this passage that he chose to go away, but my thanks to him for that. Um, Let me just pray before we begin. Dear Lord Jesus, please give us uh, us ears to hear your word this morning, Lord. Soften our hearts so that we may see the gospel afresh and that we may see your beauty. Amen. Now, do any of you ever ask yourselves, why am I here? I I don't mean in a philosophical sense, I just mean practically. Why are you here in this building? It's Sunday morning. Do you know, most of our friends have probably had a bit longer in bed this morning. They're probably sleeping off a bit of an indulgent night last night. Maybe after celebrating, I don't know, the rugby or something? What do you think, Martin? Um, (laughs) Maybe they've got up a bit later than usual, had a bit of a cooked breakfast. Or better still, maybe they've gone out to a calf. Right about now, they're probably sipping on a nice cup of coffee while reading the paper. Or maybe binge-watching their favourite show. If you tell some of these people that you go to church on a Sunday morning... I'm sure they'll say something like, oh, that's nice for you. Now, inwardly, they're thinking, you're nuts. Why are you giving up your Sunday mornings to go and meet with a load of other Bible bashers and hear about some imaginary man in the sky that probably doesn't exist? There's so many holes and inconsistencies in what you believe, it's ridiculous. Now, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this from the front, but I'll be honest, sometimes I feel the weight of that criticism. I'm surrounded in day-to-day life by people who think I'm wrong. They don't usually say it, but they're often thinking it. And let's face it, a lot of them probably think I'm stupid. It can be really tiring trying to defend what we believe all the time, even if that's only inwardly. You can begin to think, actually, what if they're right and I'm wrong? Now, when I first saw this passage that I'd be preaching on today, I thought, oh, brilliant. (laughs) Just what I need when all those... Um, doubts start creeping up is someone to keep telling me meaningless life is meaningless that's really going to help however it didn't take that long studying the book of Ecclesiastes and particularly this passage to actually see it's exactly what I needed you see Ecclesiastes is like no other book in the Bible most people would agree that the book is written by Solomon who was the son of David that's the same David who killed Goliath and went on to become the most famous king in Israel's history Now Solomon was a king and he had an extremely abundant life. It's it's probably fair to say though he made his fair share of mistakes. Not least he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Solomon was blessed by God with a great wisdom and in this book of Ecclesiastes he shares that wisdom with us. However, it can be a difficult book to understand because you read things like chapter 9 verse 5 where it says, But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Now this flies in the face of what the rest of the Bible teaches us. The rest of the Bible clearly states that there is life after death, and for those who trust in Jesus, there will be great reward. So what do we make of this then? Is this one of these inconsistencies that non-Christians tell us that the Bible is full of? No. (coughs) To understand what Solomon is saying here, We need to understand the phrase which comes up again and again throughout the book, 
under the sun. You see, under the sun is referring to a life that is lived with no reference to God, no reference to any kind of afterlife. Solomon is saying, if Richard Dawkins and the other atheists are right, if life under the sun is all there is, then this is what else must also be true. This is what makes the book so unique. He's in effect saying, you've given me your criticisms of what I believe, now let me ask you some tough questions about what you believe. Let's consider what life would be like if there is no God and life under the sun is all that there is. In chapter 9, Solomon makes three morale-boosting observations about life under the sun. One, life's not fair. Two, you're all going to die. Three, no one's going to remember you. I'm afraid Nigel goes away for a week and that's your three-point sermon, but that's how it is, I'm afraid. Um, now, Solomon raises these issues with life under the sun, but the thing is, he doesn't really give us an answer to them. I think it's this style of writing that makes the term teacher so apt for Solomon. Like a good teacher, he raises questions and problems, but he wants us to work for the answers. Sometimes he'll point us in the right direction or give us a clue, but he wants us to do the hard work. As we explore these observations about life under the sun, we'll see that actually each one is pointing us to the fact that there is life beyond what is under the sun. So if you're like me, and sometimes doubts creep in, and you question whether you what you believe is true, then let's explore Ecclesiastes 9 together and actually see that trying to explain life without any reference to God leaves just as many holes and inconsistencies of the ones that we're accused of. So point one, life is not fair. Have you ever searched YouTube with the phrase instant karma? Let me tell you, the results are brilliant. You will find thousands of videos where people do something that's wrong and then very quickly they come to regret that decision. So for example, one of them will show you a, like a, a public order situation where there's a bit of a riot going on and someone goes up to a police horse and smacks it on the rear end. This horse barely moves, but then nonchalant as you like, kicks out with its back leg and sends this protester flying across the road. Another one shows CCTV footage taken in the dead of night. It's got a guy with a brick going up to a shop window. He's obviously got some kind of grudge against the shop owner, I don't know what, but he launches the brick at the window. What he doesn't realise is that it's anti-bandit glass. So this brick bounces back, hits him in the head and knocks him over. The bloke's left to scupper away, licking his wounds. Now it seems it's not just me who likes watching these videos. They get millions of views. I think it's because it appeals to our sense of justice. We love to see people get what they deserve. The problem is they don't show the whole story, do they? For every person who apparently gets what they deserve, there are hundreds more who get away with it. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. In verse 11, teacher makes us these poetic observations. He says this, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. We like to think that we're in control, that if we make ourselves faster, smarter and stronger, we will succeed. But Solomon tells us that's not the case. Life is not fair. 
no matter your circumstances, no matter how well life is going right now, we are all just one phone call away from our lives being completely turned upside down. Horrible, seemingly senseless and random things happen all the time. Karma says, if you're good, good things will happen to you. And if you're bad, bad things will happen. But look at what Solomon says about it. Verse 2, as it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. Now when we read, the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the strong, we're supposed to conclude that's not fair. But he doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to ask ourselves, why should it be any different? If we are the random result of a big bang billions of years ago, then really we're here by accident. So there's no point in asking if something is right or wrong or fair or just, because there is no such thing. You may have your opinions about what is right and wrong, but that's all they are. They're not facts. Life under the sun means there is no outside moral law. There is nothing to say what is right or wrong because there is nothing outside. Life under the sun is all there is. Now, when you follow this through to its natural conclusion, it goes to some dark places. It leaves us unable to say that there is anything objectively wrong about horrible things like child abuse or murder or rape. And yet we're outraged by these things. Every fibre of our being tells us that these things are wrong because they're wrong. Not because society has labelled them as wrong. Teacher here is shining a light on a big problem with a worldview that denies any kind of supernatural influence. Many people say, I can't believe in God because there's too much injustice in the world. Well, teacher would respond, if there's no God, then there's no such thing as justice. So how can there be injustice? The fact that we think life is unfair actually points to some influence beyond the sun. Timothy Keller's written some really helpful stuff on this, and he summarises it like this. We believe people ought not to suffer, be excluded, die of hunger or oppression, but evolution and natural selection depend on death, destruction and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are perfectly natural. On what basis then does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair and unjust? The non-believer in God does not have a good basis for being outraged at injustice, which was the reason for objecting to God in the first place. If you are sure that the natural world is unjust and filled with evil, you're assuming the reality of some extra-natural or supernatural standard by which you make your judgement. Now, it's important to point out here that this is in no way an explanation of why suffering and pain exist in the world. But what it is, is the suggestion that if you think the world is not fair, if you look at the world and go, it's not as it ought to be, you're actually making a powerful argument for God, for the existence of life beyond what is under the sun. Point two, you're all going to die. Now, I'm afraid this sermon gets worse before it gets better. If your morale was not suitably lifted, hearing that life is not fair <clears throat> and that we have little control over our lives, let's see what teacher's next point is. It's that it doesn't really matter how you live because you're all going to die. If you start reading from verse 2, it says this, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. 
As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. As a teenager, I had a Super Nintendo. It was an amazing console. My brother and I used to put some seriously long hours in on that thing. There was one game in particular I had a love-hate relationship with, Donkey Kong. This is back when you weren't playing against other users over the internet. You were head-to-head -head with the game itself. 39 levels, each more difficult than the one before it. Some of them were ridiculously difficult and took me days to get through. Because if you died, you had to go all the way back to the beginning. Or there were occasional save points, but you had to go all the way back and do stuff again. It was so frustrating. I remember one day I'd been battling this level for hours and I was honestly ready to throw the console out the window. I was so frustrated until finally I did it. I got to the end of the level. I couldn't believe it. I genuinely felt I'd achieved greatness. <laughs> I was literally dancing around the room. The thing is, I was a little bit overexcited and I tripped over the controller wire, pulling the console off the shelf, which in turn pulled the power cable out. I let out a scream, followed by, no, 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 no. I'm then plugging the console back in at the wall, going, please say it saved, please say it saved. I need to turn it back on and see that I'm all the way back at the beginning of the level again. My great achievement had been for nothing. Solomon is showing us here that life under the sun is no different. Whether we live incredibly upright lives, keeping our word, achieving greatness, or we live as a tyrant, preying on the weak, lying and cheating. It makes no difference because in the end, the power cord's going to be pulled out. It'll be game over. You'll be dead. No second chances, no continues, no more credits, nothing. If life's under the sun is all there is, there's no punishment for being bad and there's no reward for being good. Solomon summarises it like this in verse 4. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, unlike today, dogs in the ancient world were despised. They weren't pets, they were mangy scavengers that prowled the streets, preying on the innocent and looking for any scraps they could find. Lions, by contrast, were seen as the most regal and noble of creatures. Now, if there is truly nothing beyond death, if you can live longer by lying and cheating, you should do it, because this life is all there is. Now, thankfully, there aren't many people who actually live like that. Most people at least aspire to be good, to be honest and faithful. The question this begs is why? If you really believe that this life is all there is, why would you put yourself out for other people? I'm sure people would give me lots of different reasons, but I think Solomon is pointing us back to earlier in the book. Chapter 3, verse 11 says this, He has put eternity in our hearts. Now, some people seem to have buried this further than others, but in our hearts, God has planted the idea that the decisions we make in this life have consequences that go beyond the grave. Now, I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me on this point. All I would ask is that they honestly reflect on this question. Why do you bother trying to be good? Point three, no one's going to remember you. 
Now, some people may say that the main reason that they try to be good is that they want to make a difference to the people around them. They want to make a difference to their children, to their wider family, and to future generations. Clearly, how we act has a big influence on those around us. However, I think we often think too much of ourselves. Now, there's probably a family tree expert in here, and this is going to backfire horribly. I'll try it anyway. I'd like you to put your hand up if you know the name of your grandparents. So if you know the names of your grandparents, put your names up. Keep your hands up if you know the names of your great-grandparents. Keep your hands up if you know the name of your great-great-grandparents. Everyone's hands down in case you're wondering. How many generations do you think it will be before your direct descendants can't even remember your name, let alone what kind of life you lived? That's what Solomon wants us to know. Look at verse 5. Even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. How you live your life under the sun is made even more meaningless because not only will you die, no one will remember you. Your life is meaningless. Thanks for coming. See you next week. <laughs> Thankfully, it keeps going from there. There's more that Solomon has to say here. You see, teacher is showing us that a life view with no reference to God or any kind of afterlife or supernatural is inadequate for explaining some pretty important areas of life. Morality, justice, meaning. He's leading us to conclude that to understand and make sense of life, you need to know that there is life beyond what is under the sun, that there is a God. The big question this leaves then is, what kind of God is out there? What kind of God created a world where there is so much injustice, so much death, and people are forgotten? Well, like I said before, teacher doesn't really give us answers, but he does give us a big clue. Look at this funny little story that starts in verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor but wise man and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. Now, it's easy to write this story off as just another example of injustice. But in verse 13, Solomon says that the, the story greatly impressed me. Now, I'm reliably told that the Hebrew word used here is perhaps better translated as amazed, confounded or mystified. Something in this story deserves our attention. The scene's set on a small city completely surrounded by a mighty army with huge weapons of war. The city is completely doomed. It's no ability to save itself. We're not told exactly how, but somehow a poor wise man is somehow able to save this city using a great wisdom. And yet rather than the man held up as a hero, he's forgotten and his wisdom is despised. Does this remind you of any other story in the Bible? A poor man who has great wisdom. A man who saves those who are unable to save themselves. And a man who, despite being a saviour, was forgotten and despised. 
the more I look at this story, the more I see that it is a parable pointing us to Jesus. The temptation is to read through this chapter and conclude that there is a God, but that he is cruel. And he created us only to leave us to face injustice and death. But by pointing us forward to Jesus, who came to earth and lived a perfect life, dying in our place, teacher shows us that this can't be true. You see, the cross teaches us two key things about God. Firstly, he's just. We've considered already that we hate to see injustice. And we like to see people held to account. This is infinitely more true of God. Because he is holy, he will not let sin go unpunished. The cross shows us that the consequences of sin are death. And that for God, simply letting people off the hook is not an option. The second thing the cross shows us is that God is loving. You cannot look at the cross and conclude that God is indifferent to our suffering. The cross shows us unequivocally that God loves us. He cares so much that rather than let us face our own punishment, he came and paid the penalty for us. He died in our place. On the cross, Jesus faced the ultimate injustice, crucified for a crime he didn't commit. He died so that we could live and he was forgotten, despised and rejected so that we could be remembered. Because we couldn't keep his commands, he came and he did it for us. And what does he ask from us? He asks for us to repent and believe. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The teacher wants us to conclude that life under the sun does not add up. He wants us to see that there is a God. And by pointing us forward to Jesus, he wants us to know that God is both just and loving. But then comes a bit of a surprise. How's this for an unexpected application point? He goes on to tell us that because of this, we should enjoy our lives. Now, first reading through Ecclesiastes, I thought the teacher would be the last person you'd want to invite for dinner. You can imagine, can't you? Teacher, what can I get you to drink? Doesn't matter, it's meaningless. Okay, uh, how's your week been? Meaningless. Well, it's going to be a long evening. That's not actually the case, though. If you look at verse 7, teacher says this, Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God's already approved of what you do. Make no mistake, being a Christian usually means choosing the hard path over the easy. It means sacrifice and hardship. Jesus himself said, take up your cross and follow me. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to enjoy yourself. Your life and all the good, thing, good things in it are a blessing from God and he wants you to enjoy them. Teachers warned us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that trying to find meaning in the pleasures of this life will end in heartbreak. However, when we first find pleasure and meaning in knowing that through Jesus we've been accepted, we're free to enjoy the good things that God has given us. So Christian, this week, find your ultimate joy in knowing that Jesus died for you. And in the light of that truth, enjoy yourself. 
enjoy food, enjoy a glass of wine, enjoy going to a party and enjoy a relationship with your loved ones. They are a gift. Now, I hope that some of you hear that are excited to think about how you can celebrate Jesus this week. But I've no doubt for others that's not the case. Life is hard. There are seasons where we face suffering, bereavement, illness, hardship and pain. And perhaps we feel weighed down by guilt. We don't feel like celebrating. Well, in a moment, we're going to be coming to the Lord's table. As we do, we've got two choices. We can put on a brave face and share the bread and the wine whilst holding on to our burden. Or we can come to Jesus, bringing our pain, bringing our suffering and bringing our sin. We can lay it down at the foot of the cross. We can look to the one event in history which gives meaning to all of life. And there we will see a saviour who is not indifferent to our suffering, but who cares deeply about our pain. We can look to a king who made himself poor, was despised and rejected so that we could be forgiven and accepted. He suffered so that one day we can go to a place where there will be no more injustice, no more death, and we will live forever. Before we come to the table, we're going to listen to a song. Take this chance to reflect on the lyrics and prepare your heart to meet with both a just and loving saviour. I'm going to pray and then um, James is going to put the song on for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for highlighting to us this morning that life without you is meaningless, that we can't answer those difficult questions about life unless we acknowledge that you exist. And thank you for pointing us to the cross of Jesus where we see that you care about us deeply, Lord. You care about justice deeply. I pray that you'd help us to interpret the rest of life in light of your beautiful cross, Lord. Amen.